Silent night reminds me of be still and know that I am God. It's God's way of saying, I'm God and you're not. It's probably touch and go for some of you traveling this morning. I know it was a little slick on my sidewalk anyway, but on these days, use your best judgment. If it's real bad, we'll warn you by a text as usual. Also, they tell me there's three or four things going around in the air. If you're not feeling well, if you have the symptoms of anything, stay home. There's like five ways of getting this message. You might just miss a little of the fellowship, but it's best to uh, be safe. We will be meeting this Saturday. Christmas Eve at 10 o'clock, not Sunday, and I know Brian's happy about that because he wants to get his Christmas toys under the tree, and he'd be depressed if he had to come to church and pray, so Brianna, quarter of a century, imagine how old I am. And then the same thing will pertain for Sunday mor- or Saturday morning on New Year's Eve. So we'll be meeting at 10 o'clock on those two Saturdays on the eves of Christmas and New Year's. I'm intending to bring a message called a Christmas Apocalypse this Saturday and then a 2023 Apocalypse. They may join together a little bit on Christmas, on New Year's Eve. And New Year's Eve will also be having a special Long time coming, communion service. That's one of those epipatheo. I longed to have this time with you as Jesus said to his disciples. So today I'm going to be asking four questions. We're going to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. Four questions. They're big questions. We'll only be able to begin to answer them. Also, I noticed I had to reduce a about 22 pages of notes to get this together today and I also have you'll have to uh, put up with me today because I have about 10 quotes I done I've done a lot of research this is going to be a clearinghouse of about 10 quotes I'm doing unapologetically because every one of these quotes because the Lord is with me for some strange reason all apply to this message today and the four questions I'll be asking. They're pretty basic and again I'll only begin to be answering them and we'll continue to answer these on into 2023. The four questions. First we'll read my working translation of Hebrews 8, 6 through 12 in which the new covenant is introduced in earnest. The new covenant is intricately related to the new creation. They've been joined together by God and no man can pull them asunder. The new covenant and the new creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and they became void and without form. And that's same with the new covenant. The old covenant became void and the new covenant was needed. The new covenant and the new creation therefore have an integral relationship, a marriage that God has joined the two together, and therefore the new covenant 
ultimately points to the new creation of all things and not just a covenant for a covenant people, Israel and the house of Judah, as Jeremiah says. The new covenant is made with the house of Judah and the house of Israel and by extension with all of creation. So there is the connection between Genesis 1-2 and our passage. Hebrews 8-6, my working translation, you'll notice that it changes a little bit from time to time because I'm accurizing it each time. We wanna, if you want to do the target shooting analogy, this is a thousand yard, I'm practicing for a thousand yard targets and we're factoring in what they call bug wing turbulence. That means you need super accuracy for a thousand yard shot if you're gonna hit the X-ring. And that's what I'm aiming for, an accuracy in the teaching of the word of God. So the men and women that I research are, in this case today, all recommended authors. Hebrews 8, but now he, speaking of Jesus, he is the referent here. He has obtained a superior ministry. Diaphoroteros is a word here used, and it's a little different from all the other uses of the word that indicates superiority in Hebrews. There are 13 of them where it simply translates as better. He has obtained a superior ministry. This word is like the word in Philippians 1.10 where it says that we have to learn to discern the things that differ and to put the higher value on things of higher value, higher objects of desire, higher objects of value. And that's what's used here. It's, we could actually even say he has obtained a different ministry, but it's a comparative, so it means a superior ministry. That's a superior ministry to Aaron and the priests of the Levitical order, and he is a superior or a mediator of a better covenant. So his superiority to Aaron as a priest and Moses as a mediator, which began all the way back at the beginning of Hebrews, is maintained here. Hebrews 8.6, so now he, Jesus, has obtained a superior ministry, and with that he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on the basis of better promises. These promises are the promises nucleated in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which is quoted in its totality in this chapter. And they are the promises that Peter calls exceeding great and precious promises. And I'm working on a couple of things in Second Peter. I almost was going to bring it this morning, but opted for this. So this enacted on the basis of better promises are those promises that are nucleated or found in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, in the Septuagint, Jeremiah 38, 31 to 34, and also Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. I will take out the stony heart in them, put in a heart of flesh and a new spirit, and I will put my spirit in them and cause them to walk according to my ordinances. Those ordinances are simple. Love the Lord your God totally. Love one another. Love all of humanity. Verse 7, for if indeed the first covenant had been without fault, remember the original old new heavens, old heavens and old earth are with, with fault. So is the old covenant. We'll explain that 
down the road a little bit. If indeed the first covenant had been without fault, that is not tohu wabohu, there would have been no room to seek for a second one. For finding fault with it, that's the covenant, not the people. God says to them, the old covenant community, look, the days are coming, says the Lord. And here's a total entire quote of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 in your English translations. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, diathekein kainen, new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took hold of their hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not abide by my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. We'll be explaining that down the road. For this is the covenant that I will covenant with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and upon their hearts. That means he's going to put within them what is called an obediential potency, an inclination toward obedience, an intense desire to do the will of God, And that is by the Holy Spirit. The breath of the Holy Spirit is the obediential potency or the desire to do the will of God. So he's saying about planting the will to do the will of God and the ability. Philippians 2.13 sums that up beautifully and splendidly. And so that's one of the better promises. I will put my laws into their mind and upon their hearts, not inscribe them on stone like he did with the original covenant, the old covenant that is. The old covenant, which was bilateral and therefore inferior, because anything that depends upon the flesh or the weakness of humanity is inferior. This is the new covenant, as we're going to see, is unilateral. It's made by God. It's not a contract. It's not a bilateral contract. It's a unilateral covenant. Big difference. So again, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took hold of their hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not abide in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant. This is the covenant that I will covenant with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and upon their hearts I will inscribe them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people." That's one of the final declarations in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21.3. And none of them will teach his fellow citizen or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because all will know me, from the least to the greatest, because I will be merciful to their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. First question, who is God? That's a big one. The triune God, here's the answer, the beginning of an answer. The triune God is a personal, relational being of three rational persons in a community and a communion of love. That's my definition. The triune God is a personal, relational being of three relational persons, rational persons rather, in a community and a communion of love. In that trinity, there are two definitions. There's the imminent trinity. You'll see these in the notes. I'm not going to spell out everything for you. The imminent trinity is what the trinity is in itself. 
what the being of God is in itself, who the being of God is in himself. Then there's the economic trinity, which is simply the trinity in creational and redemptive activity. Those are the two distinctions. Imminent trinity, who and what God is in himself as a triune being. Economic trinity is the triune God in creational and redemptive activity, or we could say the trinity in action in a salvific way. The new covenant community, therefore, and this is a hint, I'm going to ask who they are down the road, but this is a lead-in. The new covenant community is also a personal relational community made up of rational triune beings, body, soul, and spirit, who've been called into fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, 2 Corinthians 13, 13, and 14, depending on what translation you're reading, 1 John 1, 3. And thus to the fullness of joy, we are called to the fullness of joy in 1 John 1, 4, which comes in fellowship with the triune God, and also John 15, 11. I've spoken these things to you that your joy may be full and that my joy will be in you. The communication of the word is the communication of the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart. And it's a joy not determined by circumstances. Read Habakkuk 3.19, a good verse to read every once in a while, more lately than ever. A joy not determined by circumstances or controlled by people. As Jesus said in John 16, I will give you a joy that no person, no human being can take away from you. How many times have you rejoiced and a human being took it away from you? Once or twice maybe in your life? Maybe. Let me count or we'll be here all day. So it is... The same, this joy, is the same with being filled with all the fullness of God in Ephesians 3.19. It is a joy that no man can take away. Therefore, the scripture says, rejoice evermore in 1 Thessalonians 5.16 and rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, emphatically rejoice in Philippians 3.1. So again, who is God? Let's reduce it even further. He, God is a tri-personal, relational, rational, divine being whose existence and essence are one. Whose essence and existence and act is love. A love that's unconditional, unrestricted, unimaginable, unstoppable, inescapable, and a thousand other adjectives. Second question, who is Jesus Christ? Now we're dealing with him in our context. Jesus Christ, one in being, name, he's also Yahweh as the Father and the Spirit, one in being, name, essence, and act with God the Father and the Holy Spirit is the sole mediator between God and mankind, who is at once one with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. And so he is not one person with the Father and the Spirit, for the triune God is a tripersonal being, and he is a person. 
Now, here's one of my quotes. All of these I find worthy of quotation in full, and that's the only reason I'm doing this. I'm trying to get to the place where all you'll hear from me is what I have to say under the Holy Spirit. But a lot of these things are what I study, and I study these things intently, and I'm giving you quotations today, 10 of them, which I consider to be worthy of quoting in sometimes in a full way, sometimes in a partial way. This is from Thomas F. Torrance, T-O-R-R-A-N-C-E. All of his writings are worth reading. He is one of the proponents of unconditional grace, and he is an extraordinarily precious servant of God. He says this, if Jesus Christ and God are not of one and the same being, then we really do not know God, for he is in some Hidden, he is in some hidden, inscrutable deity behind the back of Jesus, of whom we can only be terrified. Let me say that again. If Jesus Christ and God are not one and the same being, then we really do not know God, for he is some hidden, inscrutable deity behind the back of Jesus, of whom we can only be terrified. And then the final judgment of the world will be a judgment apart from and without respect to Jesus Christ and his forgiving love and atoning sacrifice. Cut the bond in being between Jesus Christ and God, and the gospel message becomes an empty mockery. But if Jesus Christ is of one and the same being with God, then all that Jesus said and did on our behalf has staggering significance for us and the whole creation. And so, in continuing to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ, I say Jesus Christ is also one with all of humanity through his incarnation and through his life lived in the days of his flesh in perfect empowerment by the Holy Spirit and complete obedience to the will of God his Father, culminating in his experience of the death of the cross for all of mankind and for our salvation, and for all of creation and its liberation. He has been brought up from the dead by the God of peace through Jesus' blood, which ratified the everlasting covenant. Among David's last words in 2 Samuel 23, 1-5, he said that the Lord made an everlasting covenant with me. And he said, my house is not deserving of this. My dynasty is not deserving of this. It is an unconditional covenant that God made with David, and it's an everlasting covenant. So the new covenant is everlasting. It's been ratified not by the blood of bulls and goats or the blood of others, but by the blood of Jesus himself. He is now, therefore, the head in hypostatic union. That means hypostatic personal union with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is the head in hypostatic union with the mystical body of Christ. We're going to be having much to say about that in the future, especially with regard to what we're going to be calling, along with Lonergan, vertical finality, what it means and what it means to you personally and me personally. So he is the head in hypostatic union of the mystical body of Christ, and as we have learned, the great archpriest and the mediator of this everlasting covenant at the right hand of the majesty, the ancient of days in the highest district of heaven. Again, Torrance, 
Thomas F. Torrance. He says this, but in this case, it is essential to realize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is also man of one and the same being in nature as we are. If he is not really man, then the great bridge which God has thrown across the gulf between himself and us has no foundation on our side of that gulf. Jesus Christ, to be mediator in the proper sense, must be holy and fully man as well as God. Hence the creed, and he's speaking of the Nicene and Constantinopolitan creed. Those are the creeds developed by the church fathers in A.D. 325, followed by the Constantinople or the Constantinopolitan creed in A.D. 381. So he speaks of the creed that stresses the stark reality and actuality of his humanity. It was for our sakes that God became man for us and for our salvation. It's what I call divine promeity so that it is from a soteriological perspective that we must seek to understand the human agency and life of Jesus Christ. He came to take our place in all our human earthly life and activity in order that we may have his place as God's beloved children in all our human and earthly life and activity, sharing with Jesus in the communion of God's own life and love as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so to that I would add that Jesus' superiority over Moses, accentuated here in Hebrews especially, Jesus' superiority as a mediator over Moses, who was mediator of an old covenant. Incidentally, Moses is mentioned by name, just Moses, ten times in Hebrews. Jesus, just Jesus, without any other titles, is mentioned ten times in Hebrews with the intention of showing the superiority of Jesus' mediatorship over Moses. Moses was already considered to be superior over angels as a mediator, and angels were mediators. Even Michael, the great archangel, was said to stand up for Israel in sponsorship and mediatorship. Jesus is superior to Moses, who was superior to angels as a mediator. So Hebrews has a theme running through the superiority of, Moses, of Jesus over Moses, as wonderful as Moses was, Jesus is superior over Moses. The law came by Moses, the old covenant. Grace and truth, which is a unilateral new covenant, came by Jesus Christ, John 1.17. So Jesus Christ is also, as we just learned, one with humanity as well as one with divinity. Jesus superior over Moses is mentioned again ten times over in Hebrews. Way back in Hebrews 3.3, in fact, Jesus was said to be considered, quote, worthy of more glory than Moses. We see Jesus then crowned with a glory that is greater than that of Moses which according to Paul was a glory that shone from Moses' face, but faded. It was a glory that faded because it was a glory of an old covenant. God didn't want the children of Israel to look steadfastly at a fading glory. And so Moses wore a mask. He would have been very happy with mask mandates because he, he was already suited up for it. 
He wore a mask for 40 years when he appeared before Israel. And the reason was God did not want them to stare into the face of Moses and a fading covenant. He wanted them to look past Moses and look into the face of Jesus Christ from whom there was a glory that never fades. It is the glory of God. It is the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. I've shown it in my own analogy by Moses seeing only the back parts of the Lord. The Lord, He said, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will. But I'm only going to show you my back parts as I pass by. And I'm going to stick you in the cleft of the rock while I pass by. And Paul compared himself to Moses because to Paul, God showed himself. But he showed himself by turning around and seeing Paul fully Frontally, he saw Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And so he made Paul and with him, all of us, ministers, not mediators, but ministers of a new covenant. We are ministers, able ministers, because of the ability God has given us. And we're going to be coming up to that when we get to what is the task of the new covenant community. And so we see Jesus... And that's the whole theme verse of Hebrews, our study of it in Hebrews 2.9, crowned with a glory that is greater than that of Moses and with an honor that is greater than that of Aaron, the honor of priest and the honor and glory of mediator. So we see Jesus crowned with a glory that's greater than that of Moses, which again, according to Paul, is a glory that shone from Moses' face, but which faded, 2 Corinthians 3.13, it was the glory of a covenant that was to be rendered obsolete, rendered void. Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, Genesis, or make that Galatians 3, 19 and 20, he's the mediator of an old covenant, wore a veil or a mask over his face to veil the fading glory so that the former glory was the glory of the ministry of condemnation. The ministry, please notice that, Jesus has a superior ministry. The Moses ministry was, by Paul's own definition, a ministry of condemnation. The law itself is a ministry of condemnation. If you were to sit alone in your room, as I did one time in 1972, and hear God speak the Ten Commandments, you'd be condemned to hell. You want to feel hell? There it is, a ministry of condemnation. I am the Lord your God, you will have no strange gods before me. And flashing before your eyes is every strange god you ever had, every thought you elevated above the thought of God, everything you ever thought about yourself and about others apart from God. And all the commandments, you will not covet, as Paul said, I didn't know it was wrong to covet until the law said so, and now, whoa, Romans 7. And so, it was a ministry of condemnation. Thank God, Jesus has a superior ministry. It's a ministry of righteousness, which is the saving act of God and reconciliation. There's a lot to 2 Corinthians 3. It would take us about seven or eight years to do a series on that. It was the glory of the covenant, that is, Moses, that was rendered obsolete. And so, he wore a mask to mask the fading glory of the old covenant. 
a ministry of condemnation according to 2 Corinthians 3.9. But Jesus' glory is that of a ministry of righteousness according to, again, 2 Corinthians 3. Righteousness there is the fact that Jesus is serving God's universally saving act for us in his intercession. In fact, the glory of the old covenant becomes no glory at all, Paul said. Not only does it fade in comparison, it fades to nothing. It's no glory at all when compared to the light of the glory that surpasses it, which is the glory of the new covenant, the glory with which Jesus is crowned. So this ministry of condemnation has lost its glory altogether because of the glory that exceeds and supersedes it. So as Hebrews 8.13 says, and we'll be getting to that down the road, that which was old has vanished altogether. God illustrates that radically in the tearing of the curtain when Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And later when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. That which was old has vanished altogether. 2 Peter 3.10-14 tells the story in cosmological apocalyptic terms about how the elements melted with fervent heat and the old heavens and the old earth burned up. And then he asks a question, and I've never seen this before. And I was going to bring it to you today, but it's not quite accurized like I want it. Peter's actually saying, should we look for the burning up of the, old, of the heavens and the earth? Or should we be looking for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells at home? The answer is obvious, and that's what Peter closes his second epistle with. But let's continue. We're under the question still, who is Jesus Christ? That is a question I'm going to be answering for the rest of my life and ministry. Jesus Christ was judged apart from God for us so that the final judgment will not be us apart from Jesus Christ. One, that's my principle. Once more, regarding the superior ministry, per se, the superior ministry he has now obtained a superior ministry. Once again, Mr. Torrance, whom I respect quite highly, can't wait to meet some of these guys and gals. Can you say gal anymore? Probably not. Shoot me, kill me, I don't give a damn. So we have one more time regarding the superior ministry. Thomas Torrance writes this in his book called The Trinitarian Faith. Jesus Christ ministers not only the things of God to man, but the things of man to God. The vicarious humanity of Christ thus becomes, became integral to the doctrine of the atoning exchange effected by him and in him between God and man. Hence, the gospel of the reconciliation of man with God has to be understood not just in terms of God's mighty act of salvation upon our humanity, but in terms of its actualization within the depths of our human existence. That's where we get down to desire and an appetite for God. In the perfecting and presenting in and through Jesus Christ of our response in faith and obedience in love and worship to God the Father. For us to share in the worship of the Father through, with, and in Jesus Christ 
belongs to the essence of our reconciliation to God and is of the very substance of the gospel. The main thing I want you to see about that, Jesus not only ministers the things of God to man, but also the things of man to God. The new covenant was fulfilled in him. God wrote his laws upon the heart of his son. He became perfectly obedient. He loved God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He loved his enemies and prayed for them. He loved the world. And God loved the world so much that he gave his eternally begotten son. So the new covenant is already fulfilled universally by being fulfilled uniquely in Jesus Christ for us. Now you can take that grace or you can leave it. If, if you learn that God is much more gracious than you ever thought, then you can either let God be more gracious to you than you ever thought or be left with your own thoughts about his grace, which are pathetic. I'm going with the God who is much more gracious than I ever thought he would be to me and to everyone. So here's a thesis. It's not finished yet, so I'm not numbering it yet. Thesis, the gulf or the gap, G-A-P, between sinful humanity and an entropic universe. That means a universe headed toward death because it's containment of sin. It's infection with sin. The gulf or the gap between sinful humanity and an entropic universe and God has been filled by Jesus, our gap, G-A-P, great archpriest. He fills the gap or the gulf and comprises the bridge. The bridge over the gulf is not a terrifying but a very comforting image. The post-mortem fixed gulf between the rich man and Lazarus depicted in Jesus' parable has been bridged by Jesus Christ and him crucified. So not only is Lazarus able to crawl, to walk across that bridge and give the rich man water, but the rich man was with Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ's death. I would be very afraid to use that parable in Luke 16 as your proof of hell, because if you do so, you're not only an idiot, but you're a moron. So they're an idiotic moron. You're not only ignorant, you're arrogant, and that makes you an ignoramus. So then... You can tell right now, at the end of 2022, I really don't care anymore. Three, what is the new covenant? That's the third question, kind of a big one. Again, we can only begin to answer it. What is the new covenant? The new covenant itself is a new, better, everlasting, and unilateral covenant. There's some adjectives for you. New, that's entirely new. Better, everlasting. Hebrews 13.20 compared with the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 23.5. That's where the Hebrew author got, the Hebrews author got that word everlasting covenant from David who spoke of the Davidic covenant which promises a king on the throne forever and ever on David's throne. So the, the new covenant itself is new, Hebrews 7.22, better as we're learning now in Hebrews 8. Everlasting in Hebrews 13.20 compared with 2 Samuel 23.5. And it's a unilateral covenant made by God with the house of Israel and the house of Judah and by extension with all of humanity and all of creation. 
So like the old heavens and the old earth that became without form and void to be made new as a new creation, and like the lump of clay that fell at the potter's feet only to be remade into a beautiful vessel in the potter's shed, the old covenant with its fault became null and void to be replaced by a new covenant. The new covenant and the new creation are united by God and nothing can pull them asunder. Again, Robert M. Duran. His book, his last volume called Redeeming History, was published posthumously after he died. His last words in that book were, were essentially universal salvation, which he said he had yet to deal with. Well, I'll take that mantle on. I'll take that torch. Thank you, Robert. I, everything I love, I love everything about Robert Duran except that he was an avid Milwaukee Brewers fan. So we all have our faults. Even the old covenant had a flaw and a fault. And God designed it that way. Duran wrote this um, way toward the end of his last volume. He said, the real end result of Christ's sacrifice is precisely the new covenant. Jeremiah proclaimed that the covenant established in blood in Exodus 24, 8, was to become outworn and a new covenant entered into in which one, all would know God and God's laws inwardly, in which, two, I will be their God and they shall be my people, and in which, three, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This promised new covenant was established and ratified in the blood of Christ, as is clear in this is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant, which is poured out for many. And we know that many equals all. Mark 14, 24, Matthew 26, 28, Matthew 20, 28, Mark 10, 35, 1 Timothy 2, 6, for example. Karl Barth, and I can't pinpoint this one, but I just remember him saying it and remember reading it and remember even what the page looked like, said, I will be their God denotes justification, and they shall be my people denotes sanctification. We'll test that little theory out and see if it's true. I will be their God and they will be my people in Revelation 21.3 is the anthropological aspect of this great salvation. There's two things about this so great salvation that we're to be paying attention to. One is anthropological, having to do with man. The other is cosmological, having to do with the universe itself, all of created reality. And so they, I will be their God and they shall be my people is the anthropological universal aspect of the great salvation. Revelation 22 goes on to deal with the cosmological aspect, both of which aspects of the end of redemption are the end of redemption, the supreme good, the panton anakephaliosis, or the whole Christ. So another author wrote, and I believe it's Peter Grabe, the main focus of Hebrews 7:20 to 22, which we have in the last chapter, is not the covenant as such, but a covenant that is better by virtue of its Christological significance. It's better because it's all about Christ. In a book called All Shall Be Well, 
a man named Jacques Ellul, which I used to study not knowing that he was a universalist back in Bible college in Massachusetts in 1970s, three and onward. All shall be well, regards the covenant, Elul, Jacques Elul wrote this. In the new covenant of Jesus Christ, the judgment is pronounced inexorably and definitively. It is now manifest that man belongs to God since God ransomed him with the blood of Jesus Christ. In this new covenant, says Elul, E-L-L-U-L, the restoration takes place. In the new covenant, Christ is not only the victim in whose blood the covenant is concluded, he is also the only man with whom God is well pleased. The only man in whom God is well pleased. You say, well, what about me? You're in him. You're in him. Through him, God views all mankind. That's pretty neat. This is my son. Who? This Jesus of Nazareth. This is my son, in whom, with whom, I am pleased. And that means only with him am I pleased. But that's the beauty of it, because Christ comprises us all, we're all in Christ, and therefore God is pleased with all of us because he's pleased with Jesus Christ. The new covenant makes its debut. Now, this really does a lot for me, because I'll say to God, are you pleased with what I just did? And he says, no, I'm pleased with Jesus Christ. And so I say, okay, so are you pleased with me? And he says, yes, I am, because you're in my son. You're in my son, Jesus Christ. I'm pleased with you, as I am pleased with my son. And that's the reason why I'm pleased with you, because I'm pleased with my son. Is that okay with you? He doesn't say that. The New Covenant makes its debut in Hebrews with the descriptor better, kratonos, in Hebrews 7.22. So a better covenant. Better than what? Better than the old one. It's an adjective which again describes the covenant. This isn't like the who song, the old boss is the same as the new boss is the same as the old boss. That's what happens when you have a succession of people called presidents. The old boss is the same as the, it's all, it's, politicians are all the same. They all have Bachelor of Science degrees, BS degrees, and I, I'm thankful for my BA degree. I have a Bachelor of Arts, la-di-da. In this case, the new boss isn't the same as the old boss. The new mediator isn't the same as the old mediator. The new covenant isn't the same as the old covenant. The new creation isn't the same as the old creation. The new creation is altogether new. The new covenant is altogether new. The new mediator is altogether better. The new covenant, then, is based on better promises. And those are associated with a more perfect tabernacle in Hebrews 9.11. Better sacrifices in Hebrews 9.23. The one sacrifice offered once and for all the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself in Hebrews 9.26. And it's associated with the sprinkled blood that says better things than the blood of righteous Abel, this is auxasis. This isn't a comparison of bad to good or good to bad. This is a comparison of wonderful to much more wonderful. Abel was a righteous man. 
His blood was the blood of a righteous man. And so when Jesus' blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel, he's speaking better things of the blood of a righteous man. In fact, of the blood of all the righteous men and all the righteous women that were slain in martyrdom. And that's found in principle in Matthew 23, 36. So the new and better covenant, what is it? Well, it was a unilateral covenant which depended for its fulfillment upon the unconditional grace of God and the unrelenting purpose of reconciliation which he had pledged to work out through Israel for all peoples. Who said that? I don't know, but it'll be in the quotes. It'll be in the footnotes of the message. Peterson, another guy who wrote a book called Hebrews and Perfection, which I finished a while ago, said this, man is perfected in relation to God when the promises of the new covenant are realized in individual experience. Well said, and that needs amplification. Here's my thesis. Until the promise is realized in individual experience, Jesus is the guarantor of the new covenant. That means he's the one who stands as a guarantee that assures that individual realization for each and every person, even before it's fully realized experientially. And he stands answerable to the debt or obligation of each and every one until that realization or outcome is reached in their bodily resurrection. That's the difference between mediator and guarantor. He stands as a guarantor, meaning that he stands answerable to the debt of our shortcomings until we are glorified by resurrection, until we realize or are perfected in individual experience by the promises of the new covenant. So one more question, and here's the bridge to the question. This is what I call the bridge to the NCC, the New Covenant Community. That's the last question we're going to ask today. Jesus, mediator of a new covenant, is Christ the head in hypostatic union, a union of three divine persons of the mystical body of Christ. It's an organic union of nature with his body. It's a, we are in an organic union of nature with Christ. We are not his person, we are of his nature. We are partakers of a divine nature, and it is these promises in 2 Peter 1.4 that are precisely the better promises of the new covenant. They have to do with the participation in the divine nature. So, fourth question, who, or we could say what, but better, who is the new covenant community? Regarding the New Covenant community, again, Robert Duran wrote in his last volume, published posthumously, called Redeeming History. In fact, he said, the covenant purpose of God, purposes of God, it's amazing, he realized this very, very, very near the end of his life, which ended January 21st in 2021. Who? He says, in fact, these are among the last words from this scholar who was a student of Bernard Lonergan. The covenant purposes of God always envisaged the redemption of the whole world and are now explicitly calling into being 
a transnational and transcultural community. You realize what you are? You're a trans community. Well, anyways, to, to catalyze, we are a transnational and transcultural community where there's neither male nor female. We're a trans community. Someone will say, I'm a member of the trans community. I say to you, I am too. So again, let me start the quote again to get it right. In fact, he says, I almost want to get one of these cough drops, but they're Jeff's. In fact, the covenant purposes of God always envisage the redemption of the whole world and are now explicitly calling into being a transnational and transcultural community to catalyze the new law on earth that comes from the establishment of God's reign. That is, the New Covenant community, he goes on to say later, mediates redemption's ultimate end. So, as I've said before, the New Covenant community is the penultimate end denoted by the term redemption. And here's where we're going in 2023. The New Covenant community is also the fourth manifestation of that which is called vertical finality. And that means something that I didn't think it meant, and so we're going to be unraveling that or unfolding that. So here's a sub-question in closing. I ask, who are the Hebrews? Meaning, who are the people called the Hebrews in this thing called the epistle to the Hebrews? Who are the Hebrews? The Hebrews, to whom the so-named epistle to the Hebrews was initially written, are a representation of the New Covenant community of the first century of the Common Era, called CE instead of AD by scholars. I don't particularly like that because I use CE for Christ event, but we'll call it that for now, the Common Era, CE, called in scriptures the Day of Salvation. So I'll say that again. The Hebrews to whom the so-named epistle, called the Epistle to the Hebrews, was initially written, to, to whom it was initially written, are a representation of the New Covenant community, in your notes if you're taking them, NCC, all caps, of the first century and the common era called in scriptures the Day of Salvation. As such, they are a community of rational and relational beings to whom God has revealed his Son, and who have received the capacity by divine grace to receive the communication of God himself, who in these last days has spoken and does speak in his Son, leading them, that is, the new covenant community, leading them, triune beings, body, soul, and spirit, into a relationship of fellowship with the triune God, the divine trinity, and with one another in love. Ephesians 4.16. So who are we? Sub-question under question four. Who are we? We are also Hebrews, inasmuch as Hebrews, the word Hebrews, carries the connotation of sojourners in this world that are looking beyond this world to a heavenly city and who are already citizens there and conscious of it. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. 
We are a representation of the New Covenant community in the 21st century of what is called the Common Era, which I refer to as a day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6.2, confer with Isaiah 49.8, and we are not to, the whole thing about this day is it's a day of salvation. We're not to neglect it and become drifters, but disciples of salvation. The New Covenant community then, in whatever generation, of the present era are a people who have been awakened. These are all my definitions now. They have been awakened to have Christ shine on them and who have had faith kindled in them by the Holy Spirit. It's called the spirit of faith in 2 Corinthians 4.13. Faith that everyone's going to come to eventually in unity in Ephesians 4.13. I'll say that again. The new covenant community in whatever generation of the present era are a people who have been awakened to have Christ shine on them and who have had faith kindled in them by the Holy Spirit so that by having believed in Jesus' identity as the Christ, the Son of God, and by the supernatural habit of believing in Romans 15, 13, plus 99 times in John where the believing is a habit, They may discern the totality of divine love. This faith works by love or works with love. The faith is actually the discerning, discerning of the totality of God's love. So let me start all over again what it, my definition is. The new covenant community in whatever generation of the present era are a people who have been awakened to have Christ shine on them and who have had faith kindled in them by the Holy Spirit so that by having believed in Jesus' identity as the Christ, the Son of God, and by the supernatural habit of believing, they may discern the totality of divine love, know the love of Christ, and enjoy some measure of the experience of the age to come with its extraordinary life and dynamics. For God loved the world in this way, a corrected translation of John 3.16, God loved the world in this way. And here's the sense of what he's saying in John 3.16. God loved the world in this way. He gave his only eternally begotten son so that no one would perish, period. And so that those who do believe in him not only don't perish, but have the life of the coming age. Now, with its glorious benefits of experience of the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the companionship and communion of the Holy Spirit, who is called both the Spirit of Truth in John 14, 16, and the Spirit of Grace in Hebrews 10, 29. God's will is not that we look intently then, to go back to an earlier theme, at the masked face of Moses, which veiled a fading glory, but fully into the unmasked face of Jesus Christ with unmasked face by us, in which we see the unfading glory of the new covenant and the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. This goes to Genesis 1, 3, which says, God who said light shine from darkness has shone into the darkness of our hearts, the chaos of our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. So we began exegeting today with Genesis 1-2. We close with 1-3. This is the ministry then of the new covenant community. That's kind of like another question. What is the new 
Covenant Communities Ministry. Our ministry, this is still under question four though, is to gaze as into a mirror at the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, and to be transformed increment to increment into his image. And this ministry is called the ministry of the spirit who gives life in 2 Corinthians 3 and not of the letter which kills. For it is by the Lord the spirit that we are being changed from glory to glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18, during this time in between the change of the universal situation and the change of the universal condition. And since we have this ministry, 2 Corinthians 4.1, and have been shown this kind of mercy, we faint not. We do not give up. We do not cave in to evil. We do not cave into the discouragement of the trends of this evil age, which are getting more evil by the hour and by the day. And while we're at it, get rid of TikTok, but that's another matter. But we are ministers of the covenant of which Jesus is the sole mediator, even as we are, as he, rather, is the only mediator between God and all of humanity. Again, the new covenant has connotations universally because he was the mediator of a new covenant is also what? The only mediator between God and who? All of humanity. He's the only mediator between God and all of humanity because in him, bodily, is the fullness of all that can be called uncreated reality or deity. And now, because of his incarnation, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, in him is the fullness of humanity, all of humanity in him, bodily, somatikos. And you are complete in him, who is the head of principalities and powers. So... We are ministers of the covenant of which Jesus is the sole mediator, even as he is the only, again, did you get that? We are ministers of the covenant of which he alone is the mediator between God and all of humanity. This covenant of which we are able ministers in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, is the new covenant, the better covenant, the everlasting covenant, the unilateral covenant. We are made able ministers of that covenant. Because our sufficiency for this mission is not of us, but of God. More than you know, more than you ever could imagine, it is of God and not you and me. 2 Corinthians 3.5 Nothing about our ministry as a new covenant community derives from our own competence. It is God in us willing and doing of that which is to his own good pleasure. Because our ministry is not tied to our own competence. It is not ourselves whom we preach, but we preach Christ Jesus, the Lord, and we are your servants for his sake, merely servants for his sake. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we don't give up. We remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. So here's a closing thesis. And again, these are only very partial, partial answers and hints of things to come. Partial answers to the questions I asked today. My final thesis today, the penultimate anthropological end of God's saving intention is a community in love. And that's where the apocalypse is coming in that we're coming, going to be entertaining in 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love of Christ constrains us masters us, 
controls us because we thus judge. We've made this judgment. If one died for all, then all died. We've made this judgment here. This is the faith of the, the church. This is the faith that works by love. We have discerned the totality of God's love in Christ who became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, who reconciled the world to himself in Christ. This is the love of God. We are a community in love. So again, my thesis not numbered yet, the penultimate anthropological end of God's saving intention is a community in love. The community in love Controlled by the love of Christ is the new apostolate. Apostolate, which means that the community itself is apostolic in the sense that it is a participant in a divine mission sent into the world to be the harbingers of the kingdom of God and the new creation. And so uh, uh, this is the thesis finally again. The penultimate anthropological end of God's salvific intention is a community in love. Remember, that's penultimate. The ultimate is a community in resurrection, bodily resurrection and love. The penultimate end is the, of God's saving action or is in, an intention is a community in love. The community in love, controlled by the love of Christ, is the new apostolate atlot on the level of our time. That's who we are. Hebrews looking to the age to come and experiencing it in some measure through the supernatural habit of faith. And we thank you, Father, for this privilege. Thank you for the questions that you put upon my heart and mind and wrote upon my heart and mind. Thank you for the answers that are only beginning to blossom. And may all of this be the communication of yourself to this faithful congregation this patient congregation, this attentive congregation, make us more and more a community in love and a community who has obediential potency of the supernatural habits of faith, hope, and love. I ask this in Jesus' name and prepare us for messages to come, for messengers to come, for all the things that are to come. For nothing that's coming and nothing that is can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your pleasure over us and your being pleased with us because we are in your Son with whom and only with whom you are pleased. We thank you in his name. Amen. Thank you.